Little Abby Carrington was full of energy as she was running up and down the soccer field enjoying a beautiful fall day with her teammates and doing quite well uh, with some of her assist and scoring that day and everything you would think would just make this pigtailed little girl just so enthused but uh, she at halftime came over with a very uh, discouraged and, and uh, concerned look on her face to where her mother was seated in the bleachers. And her mother looked at her and said, Sweetheart, what's wrong? She's like, Daddy, where's Daddy? I thought you said that Daddy was going to be here to watch the game, and I don't see Daddy anywhere. She's like, Well, honey, I, I know that uh, that's what you were expecting, but let me just show you something, because actually Daddy is watching and so she came up next to her mom in the stands in the bleachers there, and her mom pulled out her smartphone, and she pulled open the little picture gallery that, uh, of photos that she had just recently downloaded this, uh, this picture that her husband, uh, Neil Carrington, had texted to her. And it was an aerial view of the soccer field. But it was actually a satellite a live satellite aerial view of the soccer field. And she's like, do you see this right here? And Abby's like, that's me. That's right before I scored. She's like, yeah, daddy's watching. Well, actually, Colonel Neil Carrington worked in the military, and uh, he couldn't be there that day uh, to sit in the bleachers because he was doing satellite surveillance. He was watching, not as she thought maybe that her daddy should watch, but maybe he was watching in an even greater or grander way than her little eight-year-old mind could imagine. Well, you know, when it comes to us as Christians and we think about our God, we sometimes are predisposed to fit God in our box of expectations and think, well, this is the way I work and this is the way people in the world work and the way leaders work, and my concept of how a king works. And so when I think about my God being a king and my God reigning, then therefore I imagine that this is what it ought to look like. This is what God would be doing. And if we're not careful, we like little Abby might get a little discouraged. We might get disheartened because our expectations are not being met. But when we come to the Word of God, then sometimes we're schooled a little bit. Our, our understanding is opened up and we realize, oh, God really is king. He really is reigning. It's just in a greater way than what I was imagining that his kingship would look like. And that's really what this psalm is all about. You might have noticed as we read, uh, it's divided into two parts. Uh, it goes verses 1 through 4, and then there's a... A, a very emphatic pause. I mentioned last week that Hebrew word sila, which means pause and reflect. And that's why I, I paused. I wasn't, um, in this case, sometimes I'm, I'm like choking on something up here, but that was a, an intentional pause that we would just stop and digest mentally and spiritually in our hearts what, what has just been said. And then there's kind of a a continuation, but a little bit of a change, and almost like a part two from verses 5 to verses 9 of the chapter. But all of this is designed to encourage God's people to rejoice in the reign of their God. 
you know, there, it was very common for every human being to have a deity. The problem was, in, in the days of when David is writing this, most nations worshipped false deities, which are no gods at all. You might as well just be, you know, talking into the air or talking to your coffee cup as opposed to this false idol and the deity that's represented by it. It's just, it's not there. In fact, that's what one of Paul's contentions in 1 Corinthians when he's talking about meat offered to idols. He's like, you know, it actually doesn't bother me to eat meat that's been offered to idols because there's no deity behind that idol, so nothing's really happened unto it. So in faith, I can eat it, but I understand people that may have not come to that sort of understanding yet. So, you know, you need to have deference uh, for those brothers and sisters in Christ. But the point is still made. You know, there's probably way more people that are worshiping something that doesn't exist. And that's all that Satan cares about, right? He just doesn't want you focusing on God. And if you're not focusing on the one true God and you don't have a good biblical understanding of him, then Satan's clicking his heels. Satan is happy. So as Christians, it's very important, it's paramount that we have a biblical understanding of how our God reigns. And I think when we do, we, like this psalm will say, we need to be really rejoicing. And so we want to look at this in the two big thoughts here that are given to us. And so first, in verses 1 through 4, we see that we're encouraged to rejoice in God's reign because it requires a closer look at Him. If we're really going to be able to rejoice in the way God reigns, we've got to drill down and understand Him better. And that's the wonderful thing about the Bible. That's the purpose of God's Word, isn't it? It's called a revelation. It's to help us to understand God better. And so let's just look at verses 1 through 4 of Psalm 47 once again. And notice how it starts off. There is a really a command, isn't this? This is what we would say it's an imperative. He doesn't make it as a suggestion. He says, Oh, clap hands, all ye people. Shout unto God. So right out of the gate, what's he doing? He's like, you have great cause to rejoice in a very overt, open, vocal way. So God is encouraging this response of his subjects. Now, these are people who are going to be identifying God as their God. How do we know that? Because in verse 2, it then identifies which God we're talking about. And it's the only God, right? But because people out there are messed up in their understandings and worship false gods that don't exist, he then identifies God as the who, folks? The, the Lord Most High, right? And in your Bible, do you notice that the word Lord is spelled out with all capital letters? Anytime you see that, that's to help indicate that that refers to the proper name of God. If you were to hear it pronounced in a Jewish way or a Hebrew way, you would hear it like this, Yahweh, or Yahweh, or sometimes it's, it's said as Jehovah. And this is talking about the eternal existence of God, the God who has always been, the only God. But there's never been a time when God wasn't. There will never be a time when God isn't. Let's just think about it that way. That's, that is what makes him God, by the way. So, you know, all that stuff that you 
heard about Greek mythology, about this god and this demagogue and stuff like that, that just messes up your biblical theology, something horrible, if you begin to think of the one true God that way. Jesus describes himself, what, as the Alpha and the Omega, you know? Go all the way to the beginning, I'm there. Go all the way to the end, I'm there. And so this is the God we're talking about, the creator of the universe. But what's more, for the Jewish people, for followers of God, this was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the covenant-making God. And so this, there was no uh, confusion as to who was being talked about here. But here's the neat thing. You say, well, that's great for them, right? You know, for the Jewish people, yay, yay for them. But their God is our God. Okay? We need to understand that. How do we know that? Hold your place here and look over at the book of Romans chapter 3 and verse 29. Romans chapter 3. So right after your Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then he comes Acts. Then you have uh, the book of Romans there. A lot of great doctrinal teaching in this book. And one of the things that Paul uh, addresses right away as he's writing to believers in the town of Rome, and remember, Rome was the headquarters, the capital of the empire at this time. Christians are highly persecuted. Many of the Christians that are in Rome are people who were also formerly Jews and have converted to Christianity. And so... Here he's writing to them, and, and there's already a little bit of ethnic tension going on. But the tension is between Jews and non-Jews, and we call non-Jews what? Gentiles, right? And so the question is, okay, well, now I'm coming to church, I'm saved, and I used to be a Jew, and in some ways still am, ethnically, right? I mean, you don't stop losing your, your, your biblical roots in that way. You don't believe everything the same way because now you've come to a fuller understanding of what the Old Testament was talking about. But now here's this guy who was Greek. He's Hellenistic. He, doesn't have, he, he never was circumcised. He never gave, you know, observed the feast. He, he never gave sacrifices to the one true God. He may not even understand some of the teachings of Jeremiah and Isaiah the prophets and things like that. But he understands who Jesus Christ is. He, un, he believes that he's the Messiah, and he's come to know Christ. So you have this uniqueness of, of different kinds of people and backgrounds in the same church. And so Paul says, we need to make sure our thinking is right, that we're really all one in the way that it matters. You know, that's true of us here today. Some of you like to shop. Some of you like to play golf. Some of you like to fish. Some of you, some of you are passionate about black licorice. Some of you can't stand it, okay? We have all different kinds of things that make us unique, okay? But what ought to bring us all together and fuse us where it matters most is our common bond in Jesus Christ. So here in Romans 3, verse 29 and 30, he says, is he the God of the Jews only? Rhetorical question. He's going to He's going to make it obvious here. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? And so he answers it. What's the answer? Yes, of course he is. When you hear about Jehovah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you know, that the Jews worship, hey, you may feel like you're coming late to the party, you Hellenistic Greeks, but 
He's your God every bit as much. You know, you're, you're not the stepchild. You're, you're not the, you know, somehow discounted individual. You're not the runt of the litter. He's equally your God, just like he is of the Jews. And then he says this in verse 30, Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision, referring to the Jewish people, by faith, and the uncircumcision through faith. Remember, once the New Te- this was always a hotly debated thing. Some of the Jewish people who became Christians thought, well, if you're going to become a Christian, then you guys need to go through the, the Jewish rite of circumcision. Uh, but that was answered in the book of Acts like, no. That, that was something that was specific for the Jewish people, but to be part of the body of Christ, to be part of the, the body of believers and worship Jesus Christ and follow the one true God, that's not a re- requirement. But you know what is true in both cases? We come to Jesus Christ in faith. Jews have to do that. Gentiles have to do that. And we're all coming to the same God. You know, you can go cross cultures. We can go over to Papua New Guinea. You know, we don't say, well, you know, they're going to have a hard time identifying with the white man's God. You know, this is some of the, the thinking and the radical, heretical teaching that's out there. We need to repackage God so he's more acceptable in foreign societies. And they'll even refer to him as the white man's God. You know what? He's every man's God. Right? And he is just as relevant for people who live very rural in the mountains of Papua New Guinea as he is for someone that lives in Silicon Valley. It's the same God. We, we're, we're not about trying to repackage God. Not like he needs a rebranding or a marketing campaign. No. We need to change our thinking, don't we? Like one country guy said, hey, if the cat doesn't like the way the cat's being rubbed, let the cat turn around, right? You know, that's us, right? We people need to turn around, adapt to who God is. So God is the one who motivates this hopeful celebration. It's Him. It's knowing Him. That's what we get excited about. Notice in verse 2, back in Psalm 47, our celebration is rooted in God's, what we would say, His present attributes. What is God like? What are His qualities? What is His characteristics? And you know what? Isn't that the basis of any good relationship? You say, well, we're getting to know each other. And the more you get to know someone, you're either going to say, I don't think this is going to work out. Or if it's a, like a, a guy and a girl, they fall in love, you know, and maybe eventually get married type thing. Or if, you know, if it's just a normal friendship, the more you get around that person, it's like, I really like this guy. He thinks like I think. I like to spend time with him, you know. And we have friends like that. Well, this is the way it is. The more time we spend with God getting to know Him, guess what? The deeper we're going to appreciate Him. The more excited we're going to be about Him. Notice the present tense in verse 2. For the Lord Most High is something, and He is something. Okay, So these are what God, not what He's going to be like or was, but at any given point, and remember... We said that the Lord is the eternal I am. He doesn't change. What he was in the Old Testament, he still is today. And so, what is he? Well, he is right now. 
a great king, according to this verse, isn't he? Now let's just stop and think about that. Do we really think of him as being a great king, not just in heaven, but in, where does it say verse 2? All the earth. Well, depending on how you process and filter what you see in the news, you might think, you know, God might seem like kind of a lame king right now. I mean, uh, you know, why isn't he doing certain things that I think he ought to be doing or expect that he would do? I mean, how is he okay with what's going on? And never mistake the fact that things are going on, that God is in any way condoning what's happening. God has a time schedule and a time frame and an approach to dealing with things in his manner not necessarily how man would stipulate. And so, Satan, right now, we're told, is the prince and the power of the air. That's how he's described in the Bible. So does Satan have influence, and is Satan busy working his ways on planet Earth right now? And the answer is what? Yes, he is. Yes, he is. But does Satan have absolute discretion and sovereign control over all the earth? No. Who's the king, folks? It's our Lord is the king of all the earth. I was recently reading through First and Second Samuel, come to the section where uh, David's son Absalom, who had run off, comes back, and you know he's outside the city, and David's like, you know. Not, I'm not going to see him right now, but here, here's what happens. Absalom sits outside the city, and he starts trying to uh, get favor from people that are walking by. It's like, why are you coming to, the, to Jerusalem, coming to see the king? Uh, you're from the northern tribes, aren't you? Yeah, he's probably not going to have time for you. You know, if I was king, I would have time for you. And he just did this over and over and over again. And he, what was he doing? He was trying to sow discord. Well, it actually worked for a period of time. He was undermining the monarchy. Why? Because of his jealous hatred for the king, who happened to be his own dad, King David. Now, that's where the, the parallel stops for what I'm about to say here. Really, Satan is like Absalom in that way. He, he really has a jealous hatred over the king. The Lord, Jesus Christ. He hates him passionately. And so what is, what is Satan doing? He's just like old Absalom. You know, hey, if, if, if you would follow me, you know, Jesus doesn't want you to have any fun. Jesus doesn't want you to have a, a fulfilling marriage like that person down there. Jesus doesn't, and, and starts to fill your mind with different things. And you know what? It works if we're not actively listening to the real king, right? And so I tell people, you know, hey, if you're discouraged, if you're starting to get bogged down and depressed about, you know, the, the work of Satan in our culture and our society, the best thing you can do is to spend more time in the presence of the king. Satan will never be able to absolutely usurp the throne like Absalom did for a period of time. It's not going to happen. Praise the Lord for that. We know that. But that doesn't keep him from being a busybody and being very destructive along the ways. 
Now, we read a word in verse 2. It says that God is terrible. It's like, oh, really? What a terrible thing to say, that God's terrible. But we need to understand what it means here. It's really a compliment. It really simply means that he's worthy of reverence. And this is what we have often lost in not just our society, but sometimes in our churches, is this reverential awe, this really commanding respect that we need to have of God. Please, if you've ever found yourself saying of God, the man upstairs, make that the last time you've ever said it. Our Lord is a terrible God in the sense that we ought to have a little sense of fear and quivering, even though we can at the same time refer to Him as our Abba Father, like our spiritual daddy. You know, and that's a, actually a great balance in even our human relationships with children and their earthly fathers, is that, you know, yes, you can run up and give them a hug and squeeze them and love them and stuff, but you know what? No matter how old you get that spirit of honor, there's just that, that, that sense of reverence that you never, ever lose in a good relationship that God has placed there. Well, you know what? That's what we need to have as we look at our God. He's terrible in that way. He's not worthy of joking. He should never be trivialized. He deserves our respect. You see, our celebration of God and knowing about who He is is rooted in His promised adjustments that are coming. And that's what verses 3 and 4 are about. It talks about what He shall do. Notice the change in the tense of the verb. It was, God is, God is, now it's what He shall do. And that's what we also need to rest in. Hey, things aren't the way that they will be someday, but we have an assured promise, and I can put my confidence in a faithful God who has not let me down heretofore, and so therefore I know I can rest in Him. God's going to do what? He's going to put down our oppressors. That's what the word under, why it's mentioned twice here. The people are put under us. The nations are under our feet. Right now, we probably feel like we're under them. I sometimes feel like as I'm watching the news or reading something, I'm thinking, wow, this whole thing, let's just take one topic that's really hot right now. Critical race theory, right? Okay? I do believe that there is uh, improper treatment of certain ethnicities out there. But the whole approach of trying to promote critical race theory as the solution for it is really an approach to anti-Christianity. And it is against God and the moral teachings of the Bible. And so that's not the right solution for a problem that might be out there. And so increasingly we might say as Christians, I'm going to feel persecuted. I already feel persecuted. I'm reading about, you know, we were just on, on the way to church and, and my wife was sharing with me something that she had heard in the news about how certain employers are going to be dealing with the vaccines and employees and so forth like that. And hey, by the way, if you're saying that you're objecting because of your Christian uh, beliefs, then the tests that you can take, you'll have to pay for those because you're, you know, conscientiously objecting because of a Christian. 
We're going to see more of that kind of stuff going on, folks. And we need to be aware of that. But rather than be discouraged, you know, like, but the day is coming where they may be here and we're under here. And then God's going to say, no, now they're under here and you're up here. The in reference to the inheritance is the promised land to the Jews. And it really was the excellencies of God's covenant to these people. It goes all the way back to Jacob, the land really even before that to his grandfather Abraham. But uh, this was what they looked forward to. God had, God had set the boundaries. He says, this is going to be your land. He, they didn't pick it. God picked it and said, this is what I'm giving to you. God made possible the driving out of the inhabitants when the Hebrews moved in. God did that. You see, we really underestimate the value and ability of God's giving strength towards us, even in modern days. And you can read through the Old Testament, it's like, wow, that's pretty exciting how God moved them into the land. Historically, you can go back to 1948, and when Israel came back into the same land and see, you know, outside of the biblical uh, account, you see God's doing it again. God's holding true to His Word. Say, God, does God do something like that? I mean, I'm not Jewish. I'm not living in the promised land. I'm not over in Israel. So what does God do for me? I like what it says in John 4.10. Uh, Jesus is talking to the woman and at the well. And of course, she sees herself as an outsider, right? I'm a Samaritan. What are you even doing talking to me? You're a Jewish rabbi. Remember all that going on? And so... Here, here's what happens. Jesus says to her in John 4.10, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, so he's talking about himself, I'm the one saying to you, so if you really understood the gift of God that I'm talking about, and you understand who I am, then you would say, give me to drink. And he said, and I would give thee living water. Now again, she doesn't quite figure this all out because there's this real well right there with H2O in it. So that's all she can think of. Jesus is using this as sort of an allegory. He's using it as an illustration. Forget about the water you put in your mouth. Think about the water that your soul needs. You need me. I'm that living water. And if you had me, you would never have a spiritual thirst again. I would satisfy you with that. That's what he is touching on right here. Now, the neat thing is, as you continue to read John 4, the Holy Spirit opens up her heart and mind, and she gets it. And she goes, what does she do? She goes running into town, so excited. Like, i got to find people and tell them about what Jesus just did here and who he is. And she went about telling everybody about this man that told her everything ever she did. You know what? If God is doing that for a Samaritan woman... Is he doing things for us? You know, let's just start with our salvation. You know, the fact that we can look back in our lives and say, you know, I was a sinner. I was self-absorbed. I was disrespectful to authority. I was covetous. I was often dishonest. Uh, I, I, I was often uh, someone who, um, you know, was unfair to other people. You know, we could just go on and on and list our uh, condemning uh, marks against us, right? What does Jesus do as our Savior? He comes along and says, I forgive you. 
I forgive you of that. My sin washes that away. What do I got to do? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. What a gift that is. The forgiveness of all of our sin. You know there are people that are so preoccupied and so burdened down right now because they are so perplexed with their wrongdoing and what to do with it that it, it, it occupies their every waking moment. And they're pursuing other kinds of religions. And there are people that are, right now, as we're speaking, they're going to some sort of religious gathering with the hope that it'll take care of their problems, their sin problems, you know, that they've committed since the last time they were checking in, right? You know, Father, forgive me. It's been X number of days since my last confession. And you go back and do it again. And what happens? You do it again. Guess what? Jesus takes care of it once for all. Wow, what a blessing. To wake up in the morning, and the first thought can be on your mind, my sins are already covered. You mean from yesterday? Yes, but guess what? For how you're going to blow it today. It's already covered. Past, present, and future. Jesus paid it all. What a great king we have. But then secondly, we need to rejoice in God's reign and it means that we understand the nature of His kingdom. Beginning at verse 5, here he said, it says, God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. There's definitely an emphasis on something audible here, right? You've got shouting, you've got trumpets. Let's keep looking, verse 6, and into verse 7. Five mentions of the word sing, Right? Five mentions of the word sing in this verse. So there's a lot of audible response going on here. The idea of this shout and this trumpet has sort of a military flavor to it, is the context here. And the king did go out to battle. That's what they did in those days. They didn't just sit back in their throne room and send their generals. The king, you know, he would go out. He wanted, to be, he wanted to be there when it happened, but he also wanted to inspire his troops. And so when he gave that, that whatever that ancient equivalent would have been to charge, you know, then you would hear the troops, Rah! you know, and they would go charging off across with their swords and their bows and arrows and their spears in, in great zeal for what they were about to accomplish. And you know what they, when they ran across, what they were all thinking? We're going to win. Victory is ours. I mean, what a great king we have. Folks, we need to charge into every day with that kind of zeal in our hearts. We're more than conquerors through him that loved us. I think it's important for us to notice that God's people are directed to celebrate him. But look at the end of verse 7. It as we sing his praises, it needs to be with what, according to the last word of that verse? Understanding. Very, very important that it's with understanding. If we do not have a biblical grasp on why we are to rejoice in God's reign, then there are going to be times that we may feel disingenuous. We may feel like we're big fakers, in other words. And we're just going through the motions. Well, I know the Bible says I'm supposed to rejoice that God's my king, so I guess I'll sing some hymns about rejoice the Lord is king and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, 
I'm going to go home and turn on Fox News and I'm not going to feel much like rejoicing in my king. We need to understand what's really going on here. You say, well, what is going on here? It says in verse 5, God is gone up. Hey, there's, there's a very important tense here. And it's what we call the perfect tense. Often in our English uh, way of doing this, we would say God has gone up. Something that happens in the past but continues to have ramifications or results. And that's exactly what's going on here. When God goes and works, we need to realize it's something that He didn't just start today or that He's going to do in the future. It's something He began a long time ago, ever since the fall of humanity, and that there has been a battle to wage. You know, we might think, well, when I think about the battle, I tend to think of that battle. What's it called? Oh, yeah, the Battle of Armageddon, right? You know, prophetically, Jesus comes back, takes the believers up, and there's a seven-year period of tribulation. At the end of that seven-year tribulation, this guy who's called the Antichrist and thinks he's been getting away with everything for seven years, Jesus comes back. Oh, yeah, this is the part I love, right? You know, And he's, he's coming with the host of angels, and, and we're coming with him, and, and then there's this, this altercation right in the Valley of Megiddo. And you can go there, folks, by the way, and see this huge open plain of Megiddo. And see, this is where, if we could put it this way, the final war of the worlds will be faced as Jesus goes against all the nations and the forces of Antichrist there. And he will win. And there's going to be this incredible victory. And, he, and that's what we tend to think is, I'm just waiting for that day, right? But it doesn't say that he shall go up. It says that he has gone up. And so this is something that's, going on right now the lord has taken action he is the king he's currently reigning over the heathens it says in verse 8 right so how can that be true if if we can only hold our breath till the battle of armageddon that can't be the case there are current conditions however that we are to look at in the world and its problems but yet we need to see way beyond that to see how the Lord really is working. We are often misguided in our concerns. And I'm not saying that the things that we see going on in our world are not problems and shouldn't grieve us. But if God was uh, perplexed, if we could have put it that way, like we are, wouldn't He work? Wouldn't He go ahead and do something right now? He must have a greater plan. And so this is why we need to remember that what sometimes stirs us up and thinks is this is the worst thing that could happen, say, well, maybe it's not. Maybe there's something else that's worse. Jesus clued us in on this. Matthew 10, 28. He said, you know, you might be really concerned about someone who could take and persecute you and and actually kill you, make a martyr out of you. Here's what Jesus said about that. You might think that's the worst day of your life, that you might lose your life. Jesus says, fear not them which can kill the body. Well, I don't know. I think I would feel those that fear people that can kill the body. I mean, I've only got one body, you know. So what's that about? He goes on to say this. Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. 
That's right, right? The, the world, Satan, can they get to your soul? No, they can't. And then he says this at the end of verse 28 of Matthew 10. But rather, instead of that, having a phobia and wringing your hands about all that, rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And who is that? Who's the only person that can destroy body and soul in hell? It's the Lord. It's our God, right? So in other words, I need to be focused on him and I also need to be thinking on the eternal plane is what he's talking about there. Take my eyes off of what Fox News can cover and think about what only God can cover and give me a commentary on. We're given a glimpse of the forces of heaven. If you just look over a couple of pages to Psalm 68 in your Bibles, just look at Psalm 68 and you'll see what I'm further how this is emphasized here psalm 68 and we'll just look at verse 17 for instance and immediately you get a military flavor here the chariots of god there you go chariots we must be talking about military right the chariots of god are twenty thousand even thousands of angels the lord is among them as in sinai in the holy place thou hast ascended on high thou hast led captivity captive Thou hast received gifts for men, yea, for the rebellious also, that the Lord God might dwell among them. So verse 17 sounds like you're going to see wheeled chariots with horses and, and armies come rolling in. But then verse 18 comes around and, and characterizes this a little differently. It's like, what's this captivity captive? Well, you know, Psalm 68, 18 is essentially quoting Ephesians 4, 8. And so look over there, if you would, for just a moment. I want you to see this because it's, it's wonderful to see how the New Testament grabs back in a very relevant way and stitches together what the point of those Old Testament verses were in the first place. And so Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 8, talking about Jesus and talking about the gift of Christ that we receive through salvation. How do we know that? Because verse 7 Unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Verse 8 says, Wherefore he saith, and he's going to quote that verse that we just read in Psalm 68, 18. When he ascended up on high, he led, what? Captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Who's he talking about doing this? Jesus is doing this. When did Jesus live, lead captivity captive? He did that, made that possible when he died on the cross. Who are the captives? We're the ones that are captives. Humanity is captive. What are we captive to? Our sin, right? We're in bondage to our sin. And when Jesus saves us, He sets us free from that. One more passage I want you to see in the New Testament while you're still there is John chapter 18. This is a conversation that Jesus is having with none other than Pilate, the Roman a procurator, and Pilate is being tasked with the unpleasant job of trying to discover whether Jesus is innocent or guilty or whether he should set him free or condemn him to death. Of course, he's already been warned by his wife, and Pilate didn't listen to the little lady. That was a big no-no right there, okay? But we also know that this was all sovereignly planned by God, too. 
So here's this conversation that Jesus and Pilate are having. And let's drop in in verse 35 of John 18. Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priest have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? In other words, there's this huge mob of people that have dragged Jesus. The high priest is the most powerful man in the Jewish nation. Is basically saying, Pilate, you better condemn this guy. And, there, and so Pilate's kind of coming late to all this. I'm sure he knew about Jesus. He was so popular in that day. But he's like, what in the world did you do to your own countrymen? I'm not even a Jew. They're bringing you to me, you know. So say something here, man. Verse 36, I love Jesus' answer. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight. Then I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from thence. In other words, we can't think in the Fox News realm, right? We can't think in the literal chariots made with wheels and horses with four legs and armies of men, right? He's like, that's not what I'm about right now. Will it be someday? Battle of Armageddon, right? That's going to be a very literal battle, okay, with bloodshed. But he says, right now, he says, you don't understand how my kingdom is working. He says, if it were the way you're talking about, he said, absolutely. My people would rise up and, and there would be no stopping. But that is why Jesus is like a lamb led to the slaughter, right? It's part of what the reigning king wants. It's what must happen. Well, Pilate is, is still very puzzled. Pilate therefore said, verse 37, unto him, Art thou a king then? I don't, I don't get this. Are you a king? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I'm a king. In other words, he's just saying, because you mentioned it in your question, then you're saying so. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. That is my role. I'm not here so that I have people bringing me banquets and you know, tribute in the form of cash money and having lavish parties that I invite everybody to come to and show off. No, what is the agenda of my kingdom? To give truth, right? And he says this, everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. In other words, if you are predisposed by the sovereign work of God, to hear, this is what he always meant when he said, he that hath ears to hear, let him what? Hear, okay? That's what he's saying here. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. And then Pilate says these very dark, this very dark question, what is truth? He has the truth incarnate standing in front of him, right? Jesus is explaining the whole point of why he's there. He's also explaining why everybody's so irate with him. He's been giving the truth. Did the people want the truth? The multitudes didn't want the truth. The truth made them angry. That's why the high priest and the Pharisees and the Sadducees want him out of there, execute him. But you know what? Even in executing him, they're accomplishing the culmination of Christ's purpose in coming, establishing the truth of the gospel. He said... You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. 
hey, if you've trusted Christ as your Savior today, you've been liberated. You're part of the king, kingdom of Christ. The kingdom that He's still building right now. That He's still king over. That is winning. And the gates of hell are not prevailing against it. That can't be stopped. Let the earthly governments bring any regulations they want. They cannot stifle our king in moving forward with the advancement of his kingdom. Folks, we're right now on the winning side. We're experiencing victory right now. We just need to look at it through the goggles of God's word. Verse 8, back in Psalm 47. It says, God reigneth over the heathen. God sitteth upon the throne of His holiness. You know, when the king is on the throne, it means the assurance that victory has been secured. And God operates on that basis. When was victory secured? At the cross. That's when the first promise of God to mankind was fulfilled, was at Calvary. He told Adam and Eve that there was going to be a seed of the woman that would bruise the head of the serpent. And that serpent was represented as Satan, right? And at Calvary's cross, though Satan might have thought, ha, I got Jesus, they killed him. That was just a wound to the heel of the seed of the woman. But in so crucifying Jesus Christ and his shedding of his blood and his burial and his resurrection bodily from the grave, showing the Father's acceptance of the Son's sacrifice, for the atonement of all humanity's sin, Satan was given a blow to the head, a lethal blow. And Jesus is able to sit on His throne. Victory has been won. There's nothing more for Him to do to gain the kingdom spiritually being won in the hearts of men and women today. What a joy that is. As the end of verse 9 says, He is greatly exalted. Folks, is He exalted in your heart today? Are you rejoicing? Are you singing? Are you shouting as you go through your day? Don't let what you're seeing in the world rob you of the joy of the victory that is yours right now. And to see your God as a victorious King currently right now. What a great thing it is to rejoice over our reigning King. Father in Heaven, thank You for Your Word. Thank you for the encouragement that is not just for the Jews, but for us as well. Lord, to know that in Christ we worship the same God, our same Savior. And that today, that we don't just look for a King who will someday be victorious, but that we have a King right now who is victorious. Thank you so much for liberating us. Thank you so much for making us who were formerly captive, that you've led us in a victorious parade of victory, and now that we are servants of Jesus Christ, not of Satan. And Lord, I pray that we would not be once again all entangled in the yoke of bondage. Help us not to believe the lies of Satan. Help us not to believe the lies of our flesh. Lord, help us to stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.